But Noah understood a value that many of God's people throughout time have understood. And that is that things that are given to God are of far more value in his hands than in our own. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, it was Pliny the Elder who said these words. He said, from the end spring new beginnings. Or if you're a fan of The Office, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. That's where we're at in our study of the book of Genesis. New beginnings springing from something coming to an end. We've been studying Genesis for the last few months, and in Genesis chapter 1, we were introduced to Adam, the first man. And we saw that God gave Adam and his wife in chapter one, a command, and the command was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over creation. The idea behind that command, behind the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate, the idea was to fill the earth, every corner of the earth with blessable image bearers who would in every generation and in every place, every corner of the world, not only enjoy God's grace, but also extend God's glory. We do that by building new communities. These communities are filled with other image bearers, and these communities help reflect back the image of God, the glory of God, by introducing the character of God in these communities, generosity and faithfulness and integrity and beauty and truth and justice. That was the plan. That was the original mandate, and yet we saw how all of that went fatally wrong. Adam and his wife Eve were authorized by God to represent him, and instead of representing him, they rebelled against him. They ate of the forbidden tree. They were still commissioned out, but now the consequences of sin were spiritual death and separation from God. They were cast out of God's presence, out of Eden. And this corruption magnified, not only in their lives, but it magnified in the next generation. It produced selfishness and murder as Cain killed his brother Abel. Abel's blood cried out from the ground figuratively against his murderer Cain. And now the ground itself under Cain's feet was cursed. But as we've studied in Genesis, the corruption didn't stop with Cain. As man spread out East of Eden, so did the pandemic of sin. We're familiar with that terminology, so I'm using that on purpose, the pandemic of sin. The violence that took the life of Abel was now commonplace in every settlement, in every city. Sin wasn't just crouching at Cain's door and desiring just to master him. No, it was lurking in the heart and mind of each and every human being on the planet. And so as we've seen, God in his justice lamented that he had made man. And in the flood, he poured out his wrath and he, so to speak, cleansed the earth of the violence by cleansing it of humanity. But not only humanity, as we've seen, he also 
wiped out every creature that breathed the breath of life. Because of Adam's original sin, all of creation grown, you could say, with one last collective breath of air before drowning in the worldwide deluge. But even in wrath, as we know from the scripture, God remembers mercy. Yahweh had shown his grace to a righteous man, Noah, and Noah and his family had obeyed God. They had constructed this ark, even when it didn't make sense. And now they obediently exit the ark, as we saw last week, waiting for God's command to do so. Noah's name itself means repose or rest. And God was giving the planet a rest from its violence, even as Noah's life now represented a rest from God's anger. And as he steps off the ark, he enters a new beginning. In many ways, this is a a new creation. He is now a second Adam, and this is a new world. What we're going to see today in this text is very reminiscent of what God had already commanded Adam in chapter 1. However, we're going to see some new details. There are some new traces of ideas, but still some traces of familiarity. We have some important updates and also some things that we look back on. And for those of us who are bacon lovers, this is an incredibly encouraging text for us. Now, Noah, as he walks out of the ark, he also takes the contagion with him, the one that began in the garden. Even though Noah is saved, so is the rebellion. And so for that reason, there's some new things God is going to emphasize in his command. So if you're taking note, we're going to see three things in our text today. We're going to see the promise of God in verses 20 and 22. And this is the the promise that God will no longer act like he did in the flood judgment. We'll see the propagation of man in chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And this is just the blessing of God upon Noah and his family to continue to fill the earth and multiply. And finally, we'll see in verses 4 through 7, the protection of life. God will now elevate the importance of lifeblood. And in these verses, he establishes from the book of Genesis the concept of capital punishment if you take the life of another. And it's this last point that we have a lot of very relevant, uh, helpful implications for us today, as we'll see. So the title of the sermon today is The Sanctity of Life, and you'll see why that's important when we get to those verses. But let's begin in this first section, the promise of God, starting in verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The then of verse 20 is immediately after verse 19 when they exit the ark. And we established this a few weeks ago when we looked at how Noah brought with him not just one of every clean bird or a pair, but seven. And not just a pair of clean animals, but seven. That is coming into play here because as he takes some of those animals, he then offers them by killing them, by cutting them, killing them, they bleed, they die, and then burning them as an act of worship. This act that Noah's doing here is an offering. It's an act of gratitude for God's gracious and special salvation. Now, I think it's interesting that uh, if you looked at the Gilgamesh flood account, the Babylonian account of the flood. They argue that the gods were so hungry, that's why they ended the flood early, so that man could quickly get to making barbecue. And they were hungry, and their hunger pains needed to be satisfied, so they had the sun dry out the flood. We know that that's ridiculous. And uh, 
I've made the case that the Babylonians got their story and changed the details, but they got their story from Noah and his family generations earlier as they passed down the story. God's not hungry. He doesn't need the smoke and the offering because he has hunger pangs. No, Psalm 50 reminds us God doesn't need animal sacrifices because he already owns all the cattle anyway. It all belongs to him anyway. And so what Noah is doing here, he builds this altar most likely out of stone. Uh, and he is doing what's called a free will offering. This is essentially an offering of thanksgiving. Now, often the uh, nation of Israel would do a free will offering on or near a holy day or just as an act of, of gratitude for some gift that God or blessing that God had given them. Remember, Moses wrote this. It's the same Moses who wrote the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. And in the second book of our Bible, Exodus, we learn that as the tabernacle is being constructed, there is an invitation for all of Israel to bring the necessary supplies, if they had them, to help contribute towards the completion of the tabernacle, the place where God's glory and his presence would dwell on earth. And look on the screen. We learned this in Exodus 35. It says, as they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. You catch that? Everyone whose heart stirred him, whose spirit moved him. If we have the supplies and we're stirred to do so, we want to help and contribute. Just a few verses later in Exodus 35, we read this. All the men and women, the people of Israel, here it is again, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord or for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done. Here it is. They brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. There's that phrase. And that's what's happening centuries earlier here with Noah. His heart is moved. His spirit is stirred with gratitude for God's special salvation. So now he brings some of these clean animals, some of these birds to kill and burn and give back to God in thanksgiving. Now, if anyone needed a handful of birds at that time, it was Noah. If anyone on the planet could not afford to give a little bit extra, it was Noah. There was no surplus of supply. But Noah understood a value that many of God's people throughout time have understood. And that is that things that are given to God are of far more value in his hands than in our own. May we remember that when we consider our own materialistic blessings. Spurgeon said it this way, common sense would have said, spare them for you will want every one of them. But grace said, slay them for they belong to God. Give Jehovah his due. I think there's some implications for us when we consider Noah. We think about David, the man after God's heart, and he literally said, I resolve not to give burnt offerings to the Lord my God that will cost me nothing. There's a whole sermon just in that, that verse alone. But I think it's interesting that often we'll gladly give our time and attention to things like binge watching shows or we'll give our income to things that bring us comfort and pleasure. But when's the last time we chose to give God something that cost us, something costly? In fact, I think every time we come together in our Sunday gathering, that we come to not only give something, but also to receive. Now we think about coming to receive. We come with expectant, ready hearts to be encouraged, to be equipped, certainly. But what if we came 
in the same way, not with empty hands or empty pockets, but with something to offer, something to give. Maybe it's a tithe, an extra offering, perhaps a word of encouragement, maybe a prayer. Maybe it's just a listening ear. But what if we all came with something to give, not just anticipating to receive something? Well, I think Noah is a great example of someone who, in his just gratitude for God's goodness to him, he turns and he offers what he has. Well, verse 21, God, God's response says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike, again, strike down every living creature as I have done. Notice with me that the Lord considers Noah's offering a pleasing aroma. You might want to circle that phrase. Uh, it's a pleasing aroma, not just because barbecue does smell amazing and because it really should be a spiritual gift in the New Testament, the ability to offer up barbecue to the Lord's church and pastors. I appreciate many of you who have that gift. Thank you. If you're into smoking meat, we appreciate, the, uh, we appreciate you. But that's not why, it's not the only reason it's a pleasant aroma. It's a pleasing aroma because of what it represents. You see, these offerings represent surrender, submission, trust, allegiance, and obedience. No wonder Paul uses the same language in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, to describe the sacrifice that Jesus, our Lord, made of his own body. Paul says to the church, walk in love, how? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And here it is, the same phrase, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Not only is Christ's offering of himself, not only is that fragrant, but also, Paul says, the church walking in sacrificial love one to another. This is also a pleasing aroma. And yet here in verse 21, Yahweh is saying, I will never again curse the ground, even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, I think that's important. We'll come back to it later. I just want to say for a minute uh, that this would have been implausible if this were only a local ancient Near East flood. God would not be honest here if he said, I'll never again curse the whole planet uh, with a flood. I'll never do that again uh, if this was only a localized flood because there have been many localized floods throughout time. And so I think that argues for a global deluge. But the argument here is that God is promising, I will no longer destroy all creatures. But he also promises to introduce the seasons. Look at verse 22. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, if you're taking note, there's four sets of ideas here. You can look on the screen. So in relation to farming, there's now seed time and harvest. You and I don't, unless you have a farm, you and I particularly don't understand that there's a time to plant, like Ecclesiastes says, and a time to reap. We just know there's a time to go to Publix. <laughs> we go and we get our produce. But there is a time to plant the seed and there's a time to yield it. Uh, in relation to temperature, again, we don't understand this, cold and heat, because we have two seasons here. We have hot and very hot in Florida. But in relationship to temperature, there'll be cold, there'll be heat. In relation to time, there's summer, and there's winter. And in relation to light, there's day and night. Now, ostensibly before the flood, the antediluvian earth, the pre-flood earth, 
may not have had winter, spring, summer, or fall. We can argue pretty strongly that there wasn't rain before the flood. We knew that there were subterranean chasms, water and thermal chasms that supplied a, a mist, if you would, on the ground. And there was also a water canopy that may have provided a, a mild greenhouse condition that would have been fit for an abundance of swarming plants and animals. And so mankind and animals would not have been subjected to much, if any, radiation, which would have arguably produced long lifespans and, and much larger creatures. But now, as we've seen, as a result of the judgment, the protective barrier is now removed. Harmful radiation will now affect the lifespans of mankind. And we see that. We, we don't see anyone living the age of Methuselah 969 years or even 900 years. After the flood, we start seeing the lifespans diminish. Some people believe a small ice age occurred right after the flood. And what God is doing here to Noah is reassuring him, hey, after this small winter uh, or long winter, there's going to be a reoccurrence of the seasons. We're not sure of that. But we do know that God promises these seasons will remain uninterrupted as long as the earth endures. And what have we seen? For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, God has been true to his word. We see seed time and harvest. We see cold and heat. We see summer and winter. We see day and night. So God's promise to Noah has continued even today. Now let's look at chapter nine and our second section, the propagation of man. It says in verse one, God blessed Noah and his sons. And this is gonna sound familiar, but it's different. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So, in effect, God says, be fruitful and multiply, take two. Remember, he had already given this command to Adam and his wife in Genesis 1. But there's some changes now. In fact, Derek Kidner in his commentary says, although there are echoes here of the charge to Adam back in chapter 2, verse 17, sin has darkened the scene. The image of God remains, and man is still heaven's viceroy, but his regime will be largely one of fear. His fellow creatures are now his food and violence will be abroad in the earth. God blesses Noah and his family. He commands them to go out, be fruitful and to multiply. But now there's a phrase missing. God does not say, notice, he does not say subdue the earth and have dominion over everything. Instead, what is it? It's fear and dread will be upon the animals as they're delivered into mankind's hand. What's happening here? Well, some believe that man's relationship with the animals because of the curse uh, was different before the fall, but now after the fall, after the curse, there's now an estrangement between man and beast. And they would argue the animals are a part of that curse. They're now rebellious and are no longer easily domesticated. Another view says verse two is interpreted by verse three. And verse three says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And so they would argue, because God is now authorizing man to be carnivorous, the animals will have a natural fear of man that's instinctual because their lives are now threatened, whereas before they weren't. And I think both of those uh, arguments are plausible. But what we do know is that mankind has a new relationship with the animals. 
It's not peace and friendship like it was in Eden and like it will be in the new heavens and the new earth, which Isaiah 11 speaks of. But in this time, it'll be fear and terror. I do find it fascinating how much animals do fear humans. You think just for a minute how powerful horses are. They're much larger than us, and these majestic creatures, though, could easily overpower us. They can also be tamed with just a small bit in their mouth. I have a dog named Luther. Uh, He's a white lab. Uh, He's also a Protestant, in case you didn't know that, but we had some friends over recently, and they have a little toddler, and she was a little bit scared of Luther, and Luther, with his, his frenzied energy, could definitely wreak some damage on a toddler. He's a big dog. He could knock over this toddler, but because he fears me, I, I say, no, Luther, and then he, he quickly sits down, and we could easily teach this little toddler who can barely talk. We could easily teach her, no, woofer, and she would be able to say that, and she would also invoke fear in this great animal. And so part of this dominion mandate, part two, is that man is authorized to rule over, but also consume animals, not just plants as before. It's believed that previously man was vegetarian, but now in this new world, animals are added to man's diet. Now, two sets of people need to listen up at this point. First, the vegan, and secondly, the animal rights activist. So first, the vegan. The vegan may say, I'm more spiritual than you, pastor, because you love bacon so much you put it on your donuts and your salad. And so I'm at a higher spiritual plane because I honor animals and I don't eat them. And I would say to you, if that's your your argument, your, your compassion for animals is admirable, but it's not spiritual. And there's not a higher spiritual plane achieved for those who have restrictive diets. I think it is very important that we watch what we eat, that we consider what we bring into our body. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't put you at a higher spiritual plane any more than me learning some new breathing exercises or doing stretching makes me at a higher spiritual plane. We're not Gnostics. And you may be tempted to even argue, well, I don't consume any alcohol, therefore God is more pleased with me than those believers who occasionally have a glass of wine. As we get into those arguments, Paul would would blow the whistle in Romans 14, 17. He'd say, wait a minute, church, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So you may be vegan, that's wonderful, but that doesn't put you at a higher spiritual plane. The second person I would address is the animal rights activist. And they would read this text and bristle at the fear and dread part. They'd say, that is not cool, that is not fair. Why would God cause animals to be afraid of humans? And I would ask you, but is this not a grace? The fact that wild deer don't just walk up innocently to someone with a rifle, but they are generally afraid of animals, is this not a grace? Uh, We should cheer for that, not debate over it. Yes, many humans have exploited the animal kingdom. They've abused creation. They've abused the position God has placed us in. Uh, But to safeguard against cruelty, God is about to not only give permission, but a prohibition, which we'll see in verse 4. It is an abuse of this mandate to go out and willfully and callously just kill animals. We're reminded in Scripture, Proverbs 12.10 says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, 
but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And so our position that God gives us here over creation, it warrants that we should have compassion, not cruelty. I mean, even Jesus argued that on the Sabbath, a Jew wouldn't leave their ox to to die if it fell into a pit. Even on the Sabbath, you'd be willing to save your own animal. Now, though that's true, I do do want to make this point. God has not made animals or people to serve animals, but animals to serve people. There are cows that roam throughout Hindu lands, right next to children who are starving, and that is incongruent with God's creative order. Psalm 8, which we're going to sing at the conclusion of the sermon, it shows us, you want to jot that down, Psalm 8 shows us where our place is in the created order. Psalm 8 says, He made us a little lower than the angels. And yet he's crowned us with glory and honor. So you and I have been crowned as viceroys, so to speak, representatives of God. And we are nowhere in scripture called part of the animal kingdom. No, here in Genesis 9, uh, we're not evolved apes that are a part of the animal kingdom. No, we're elevated above the animal kingdom. And there's a large distinction between baby whales and baby humans. Often we do much work into protecting the former while ignoring and even redefining the latter. And I find it insatiably irrational that the same people who advocate for animal rights will land on the opposite position when it comes to babies' rights. So here we are after the flood. God is reestablishing the value of human life. And he ordains that we should propagate, we should go and fill the earth by multiplying, to promote his glory. And human life now takes priority in a very significant way over animal life. Now, there's one more truth that we see laid out for us in this final section, the protection of life, and that's verse four. This is a key verse, and you want to circle the last word in the verse. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Please circle the word blood here. So there's permission to now eat animals, but there's also a prohibition not with blood in it. There's to be care in how we're to consume. So if animals were to be killed and eaten, there was to be a respect for the life of the blood. You didn't kill the animal and just immediately start eating it. You were to drain it of its blood. I'm not gonna get into, should I have my steak medium rare? We're not gonna get into that today, okay? We'll talk new covenant at some point. But many people argue that the soul of the animal is the blood. And... If you consume the blood, you're consuming the life. When blood is poured out, the argument, though, is life is poured out. Now, there's much reference to blood in the scriptures, not because the Bible is gory, but because blood represents life. David Gusick put together a helpful list on scripture verses that speak of this. Uh, We'll have this on our website as well, but this is a great reference. So blood was the sign of mercy for Israel at the first Passover, Blood not only sealed God's covenant with Israel, but it sanctified the altar and set aside the priest. uh, Blood made atonement for God's people and sealed the new covenant. As we look into the New Testament, we see that blood justifies, it brings redemption, it brings peace with God and cleansing. It gives us entrance into God's holy place and it sanctifies us. And we also see that they overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Blood is throughout the scripture. And it's argued that here in verse four, this is the theological foundation for the entire sacrificial system that would come later in the Mosaic Covenant. 
And we do see blood throughout even Leviticus, but there's a key verse in Leviticus 17. I want you to look at this verse on the screen. Verse 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Sin costs a life. And God in his law mercifully substitutes an animal life to make atonement for our sin. We'll see that a little bit later. But in verse 5, God presses the issue further. He says, and for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So stay with me. Life is in the blood. If a man takes a life, God requires a reckoning for the blood. What is that reckoning? It's life. But note the personal nature of verse 5. From his fellow man. God is making this personal. In fact, in the Hebrew, you could argue that this is from his brother. Not literally your kin, but he's saying you are kin. This is from another fellow human. If you take their life, your life will be required. Now, he also says, from every beast I will require. Not a beast killing another beast. He's not saying he's going to go out and reckon every cow that knocks another cow off a cliff and say, okay, now I'm going to take. He's saying, if a beast takes the life of a human, it will also be reckoned. But then look at verse 6. This is very poetic. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Notice that verse 6 calls us back to the image of God. The Latin phrase is the imago Dei. Man is created in God's image. The Hebrew word for image is selim. It's spelled T-S-E-L-E-M. So the T is a little bit silent, selim. A selim is a corresponding image that represents the original. So when Nebuchadnezzar, you remember he set up a statue of himself, because that's smart. He sets up a statue of himself to be, uh, to be admired and to be worshiped, to be prayed to, to be bowed down to. And you guys remember in the book of Daniel that a word that's used there is the word selim, the, the statue that represented the king. And it was made to reflect his likeness. Not a perfect likeness, but enough that where you could say, yeah, that's supposed to be King Nebuchadnezzar. And wherever this statue went, this selim went, this idol went, so to speak, it corresponded to and represented the image that it had been made from, the king. And in a sense, the scripture uses that word to describe us. We are, as humans, the corresponding image of God. The image of God is stamped upon every single human, not just believers, but every single human. That means the basis for human rights and dignity is the image of God. Thus, we have value, we have worth, we have dignity, not because the government says you do, not because you have a gifting that pleads your merit, but simply because you as a human display the image of God. And thus, that's the argument. Because of that, we are not to shed another man's blood because that man, that woman, was created also to reflect back God's glory. You don't have the right to do that, to take the life of another. In fact, if you take the life of a man, by, your, by man, your own life should be taken. 
The life taker can only have his life taken by other image bearers. This here is delegated by God to man. This is not arguing for vengeance where God is saying, hey, if someone kills you, just go kill them back. No, what he's saying is he's establishing the principle of capital punishment as the consequence for any intentional murder of an innocent human life. If you take the life of another, then by others, your life will be reckoned. Now, I read verse 7 with verse 6 because I think this is key. Verse 7 reminds us we're to prioritize life. We're to extend life. We're not to take life. The Mosaic Covenant goes into this deeper, but some may read this or hear this and say, well, this, is, this capital punishment stuff is not fair. I don't agree with capital punishment. Well, I like what one commentator points out. Uh, he says, when opponents of capital punishment say it is barbaric, I say the murderer was the barbaric one. He killed a person innocent of breaking the law, whereas the state is killing a guilty person to uphold the law. It's not murder when the state is having capital punishment. And he says not to make that distinction leads to the breakdown of the principle of law and justice. And so we are to uphold life or, as the sermon title says, the sanctity of life. And I believe that these verses have far-reaching implications. And I can think of three. If you're taking note, I want us to jot down three ways that these ideas uh, play into application for us today. So number one, we talk about life. First, we must safeguard the sanctity of life when it first begins. If life is in the blood, then we have to look into the womb. And the developing human in the womb of their mother will, within weeks of conception, have a heartbeat and from the very moment of conception will have produced its own DNA and eventually its own blood. Yes, there's an absolute dependency upon the mother to receive nutrients and to filter out waste through the placenta. So the baby is dependent upon the mother and the placenta. But that dependency doesn't dehumanize the baby any more than if you are dependent upon insulin. Well, now because you're dependent on something, you are now subhuman. I was actually shocked and encouraged to read a paper that Princeton University wrote back in 1999. Princeton University wrote this. Listen to this. They said the fusion of the sperm with 23 chromosomes and the oocyte with 23 chromosomes at fertilization results in a live human being a single-cell human zygote with 46 chromosomes, the number of chromosomes characteristic of an individual member of the human species. They said a zygote is the beginning of a new human being. They go on to say this, this new single-cell human being immediately produces specifically human proteins and enzymes, not carrot or frog enzymes and proteins, and genetically directs his or her own growth and development. They actually said his or her, which surprises me, but this was 1999. They go on to say, in fact, this genetic growth and development has been proven not to be directed by the mother. Finally, this new human being, the single cell human zygote, is biologically an individual, a living organism, an individual member of the human species, a new individual. Now, we don't need to look to Princeton to give us that information. We can look to the scriptures in in Psalm 139 and various other places, but there in Psalm 139, we read that God knitted us together in our mother's womb as a person that our frame was not hidden from from God when we were made in secret. 
So what David calls secret, we now can see through ultrasound and other technology. Church, life begins at conception, not birth. As much as people want to redefine what's in a woman's womb as a cluster of tissue, or they use Latin phrases like fetus or zygote or embryo to dehumanize, we all know when a woman gives birth, what does she give birth to? A little boy or a little girl, human. Um, in fact, this, this is important because Proverbs 6 declares one of the th seven things God hates is hands that shed innocent blood. We learn in Proverbs 20, 23, that unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. So when we talk about equal rights or equal protection, we have to say as Christians, that begins in the womb. So we praise God, don't we, for the recent advancement uh, in these days where there is a just overturning of Roe v. Wade. We thank God for that. However, many are, are, are in our country clearly angry and are seeking to fight this. Our response as Christians is that we advocate and safeguard life from when it first begins. And so it's important that we know that. But we don't just stop there. Secondly, we must safeguard the sanctity of life until it ends. Now, some have said to me, literally, they've argued against me and they've said, you know what, Pastor, you're just pro-birth. Maybe you've heard that argument. Oh, Christians just care about the baby being born and then they, they don't care anymore. They don't come alongside. And that is just the most empty, vapid, useless argument because just we as a church alone uh, are very involved with ministries like CareNet, like Bridge of Life that come alongside. Yes, we are pro-birth, absolutely. But we, we come alongside those families uh, and make sure that those kids are cared for and not just born. But we need to safeguard the sanctity of life until it ends. So consider this for a minute. Not only our babies, but everyone in between, even to those who are near death's door. If you believe all humans have dignity and value and worth, be, just because they're created in God's image, then their merit does not hinge on what they can or cannot contribute to society. In Nazi Germany, many who were unable to contribute were deemed useless and they were exterminated. In fact, today, those who are disabled, incapacitated, or terminal should never be considered second-class citizens. They are not second-class image bearers. And putting these people to death with dignity is a dangerous path to tread. In fact, in the Netherlands and Belgium, they already permit people who have been diagnosed with dementia to sign an advanced directive to order themselves killed when they become incapacitated. And recently, there was a very serious case where a patient was euthanized even though they resisted. And so what did the government do? The government responded by changing the law to enable the Dutch doctors to still drug and euthanize those patients without their permission. And even in Canada, last year, they loosened the criteria. They recently filed a bill in the Senate that would allow or permit patients to order themselves killed without final consent if they somehow become mentally incapacitated. Who makes that argument? Where do we draw the line and say, now you're mentally incapacitated? In fact, several US states, 11 or so, have laws or court rulings that allow doctor-assisted suicide if you have a terminally ill situation. Now, these are complex issues. I'm not making a broad brush statement. We have to use discernment and, and wisdom in every single scenario, but the scripture's clear. If we take the life of another human, our own lives will be reckoned. 
So we should prayerfully consider our laws and who we elect as lawmakers as we as Christians stand for life, knowing that God alone has the power to give or to take it. We have to consider these things uh, very carefully. You say, well, don't be political. Well, the scripture speaks to policies and politics are policies. And so we have to tread uh, very carefully and very biblically on these things. Now, on that note, on the third and final critical, crucial note, number three, we trust God's word and we trust God's character for justice and for vengeance. What do we do when someone has killed someone? Well, verses like this one in Romans chapter 13, they help shape our understanding of God-given governing authorities. If you guys missed the sermon we did on government, you want to know, where do we stand as a church on the government? I encourage you to go back and listen to the study we did in Romans chapter 13. It's on our website. Uh, But we talked about authority under heaven. And those under heaven authorities are finite, meaning they're not ultimate. They're limited, meaning they must not infringe on areas where there's other authorities. Where God has clearly marked out his will in scripture, no earthly authority has the permission or the jurisdiction to infringe where God has already spoken. They're not only finite, they're not only limited, they're also fallen. And that means that no authority, human authority, even pastors and elders, will fully, perfectly represent God because we're sinners. And that means when we think about government, these authorities will never fully submit to a theocratic vision where God is the lawgiver, the judge, and the king. So we have to keep that in mind as we think about authority. But as we navigate capital punishment and law, we can trust as Christians that our God of justice will not permit evil to be tolerated or unpunished in eternity. We could pass every law under the sun that favors biblical ideals. And yet we can't legislate the human heart. What we'll see with many is that they will be obstinate against God. And so capital punishment, which is the state being granted the authority to justly put to death a murderer, is biblically authorized when there's been deliberate premeditated murder. What about in other cases? Well, there's other scripture verses. God actually makes provision for those who accidentally kill another. In Deuteronomy 19, we see he provides cities of refuge. I think it's not comical, but he says, if you're cutting your tree and the ax head flies off and kills someone, well, that was not premeditated. You didn't try to murder them. uh, Then that person should be provided for. So there are accidents and there is provision. But overall, of this is the value of human life, the sanctity of those who have been made in God's image. As the flood waters have subsided, God promises here, I will no longer curse the ground because of man. I will no longer destroy all creatures with the breath of life because of man's disobedience. Why? Because of Noah's sacrificial offering. You see, his altar, his gift His free will offering is a foreshadowing of another propitiation, a true and better one, where the curse is forever removed. Whereas we just sang, death is crushed to death and life is ours to live. At the cross, one one man's breath was snuffed out so that you and I might be given eternal life. At the cross, one man became a curse as he was hung on a tree taking upon himself 
the wrath that mankind deserved in God's just judgment. We know there's life in the blood. There's physical life, biological life, bios. And yet our eternal life, Zoe, eternal life was secured for us by the precious blood of Christ that was shed for us. Hebrews 9.26 says, but as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' death at Calvary was not the offering of clean animals or birds, but his own life, his very body, his own blood shed, laid down as an offering that was fragrant to the Father. And he said, no one takes my life. No one took his life. No, he laid it down willingly, joyfully, and quietly. Hebrews 10 says, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As Noah steps back onto the muddy uh, ground, he finds himself on cursed ground. And as it dries out, the same ground would one day expel, it would one day vomit out the truly righteous one, the one who had committed no sin. We know on the third day after he was crucified, Jesus rose from the dead. And now whoever's received his merit, the merit of his blood, will experience not just life, a heartbeat, but eternal true life. John said in 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the son has life. Zoe, whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. In fact, in his gospel in chapter three, Jesus said to Nicodemus, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This morning, beloved, if you're not a, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've not repented of your sins and trusted, turned to Christ, the scripture says the wrath of God remains on you. The curse remains. And so I implore you this morning to turn from your sin, to trust Christ, to receive the shedding of his blood. God requires a reckoning for your sin. It's the life, your life, or the life of his dear son. This morning, repent of your sin. Trust Christ. He alone can save. You may have been a part of a church or maybe this church for many years, many months, and yet you've never yielded your life. I'd love to encourage you at the conclusion of the service and show you the hope that can be yours in the gospel. But as we conclude, for those of us who have repented and trusted Christ, the words of a familiar hymn should lift our spirits. This hymn asks question after question. Here's the question. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you o'er evil a victory win? Would you be free from your passion and pride? Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. Would you be whiter? Yes, brighter than snow. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. Would you do service for Jesus your King? Would you live daily his praises to sing? Well, here's the answer. There's power. There's power. There's wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There's power power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Amen? Let's stand together and we'll sing. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, with such, such was your gracious will. And we ask, Lord, as we've looked to your unchanging word, we thank you and we humbly and expectantly ask that you would equip us with everything good that we may do your will, that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ.
to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.